been a few weeks since we've been in Luke, so I thought we might just, we, we, we sometimes need to take a step back and go, let's remember who wrote it, and let's remember why he wrote this gospel. Uh, often when we're reading, especially narratives, like if we go to Genesis and we're reading about Abraham, we forget that somebody else wrote it a long time after Abraham, and they're looking back on this from a distance. Luke's doing the same thing, uh, because he didn't, he wasn't one of the apostles. Uh, Luke uh, is Greek. Uh, he's a Gentile. He contributes about one-third of the New Testament to us. He was a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. And he's writing for a very specific person, a very specific audience, Theophilus. If you go back to chapter 1, in verses 1 to 4, Luke starts off his, his gospel, oh, you, you know, Theophilus, I've, I've, I, I want to write to you about Jesus Christ. I know a lot of other people have been writing, and there's been a lot of stories going around that you've heard maybe at, at different, you know, you've gone to different churches and heard the stories. Well, I've done my research. I've, I've kind of collected a bunch of sources. I've done interviews, and I've put together what I believe is an orderly account for you, Theophilus, so that you'll just know with certainty the things that you've been taught. The things that you've been taught about Jesus. And so that's Luke's overarching purpose. I recall Luke's occupation, his journeys with Paul. Luke is a doctor. He's familiar with medical stuff. And he's not Matthew the tax collector. Mark, probably young, young man when Jesus was alive. Maybe even just a teenager. And then a companion of Paul a little later on. He's probably only in his 20s or 30s when he's writing the Gospel of Mark. John, the young, probably the youngest of the disciples who, who writes much later and through a different lens. All very different. Luke is a significant author in the New Testament, but, but he doesn't give up his medical practice. Paul refers to him as Dr. Luke in Colossians 4.14. He's not listed as one of the Jewish companions in Colossians 4.11 that, that ends the list. Paul talks about these are the only ones of the circumcision that are with me, and here's another list of people, and Luke's not in that, so we know that he is one of the Gentile followers of Jesus. Significantly, I think it's important in the book of Acts in chapter 16 to watch how pronouns change. You got they went here and they did this, and then suddenly in chapter 16, after Paul tries to go to Bithynia and tries to go to Mysia, and he's stopped by the Spirit of Jesus, he, he has one more path to go, and that's to Troas. And he gets to Troas, and he has the vision of the man from Macedonia come, and, come to us. And, and so he plans to go to Macedonia. And this is where the Philippian church is going to come out of. But at that moment, too, the pronouns change, and we set sail from Troas. Isn't it interesting? God stopped Paul from going to two other cities that probably needed the gospel so that he could connect with Luke. And Luke could join the team. And then Luke would go on to be with Paul through his journey to Rome, and then eventually, in 2 Timothy, Paul even says, only Luke is with me, near the end of his life. And so those roadblocks that, that, that Paul got, you know, the Spirit of Jesus didn't let me go to Mysia. He, he, he shut down the, the, the mission to, 
to Bithynia. He opened a way to Troas. He opened a way to Luke, who would then write about one-third of our New Testament. But he would be this beautiful companion of Paul through many, many trials. I want to remind us of this because who Luke is comes in and through what he writes, how he writes, his purpose is important. Inspiration from the Holy Spirit does not nullify the human author's personality and education. They're not taking dictation. They wrote guided by the Spirit in ways that spoke clearly to the audience that they had in mind with all the cultural color and worldview of their times. That's why we have four Gospels and why they're so different and complementary. Four men, four audiences, four purposes, all influencing how they communicate. And so as I come to every text, I, I, I'm always asking myself th these kind of questions. How does this narrative speak to Luke's stated purpose? He, he gives us his purpose. I want you to know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And then how does this passage speak to Jesus' stated mission? Because Luke gives us a, um, a very unique stated mission of Jesus in chapter 4. When he's at the synagogue in Nazareth, he opens the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 61. Well, he didn't have chapters in those days. But he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he finds the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind. And to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And as we're reading through Luke's gospel, we need to keep these two purposes in mind because Luke organizes and tells us all the stories to support those two things. That Theophilus, lover of God, you would just be so encouraged in your walk with Christ. And that we would see the story of Jesus at, through the lens of living out this purpose of declaring the year of the Lord's favor and all that that means. So we're in Luke chapter 5 today. <clears throat> Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Luke's been telling different stories that, that illustrate this calling that, that Jesus says when he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to declare good news. In chapter 5, we've seen the call of Peter, who says, I'm a sinful man, go away from me. And Jesus calls him to himself and says, come with me, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisherman. And he calls the sinful man. We saw him heal the leper, restore him, cleanse him. Restore him to community. A sinner is called. A leper is cleansed. We'll have the healing of the paralytic in which both things come into play. Sins forgiven and healing. And we'll have the call of Levi, a sinful tax collector, and a discussion on feasting and fasting. But all of these illustrating the mission and the heart of Jesus, all exemplifying this one mission. Jesus says near the end of it, in chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the purpose. And what we'll see in this passage today is sins are forgiven, healing is provided, 
Expectations are exceeded, and God is glorified. Let's stand as we read this passage together. Luke chapter 5, 17 to 26. On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Luke starts this off very similar to the beginning of chapter 5. In the beginning of chapter 5, he said on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in. Here it is on one of those days while he was teaching. And once again, we get that thing that just kind of has been bugging me since we started the Gospel of Luke. Every time Luke says, and Jesus was teaching... He never tells us what Jesus was saying. Isn't that annoying? It's like, Jesus was teaching. Well, what was he teaching? Jesus explained to them from the Law and the Prophets and all the writings, and he doesn't tell us what he said. Well, there it is again. He was teaching. In this first verse, we get a, a, a setup. The, the, whole, the, the main characters here are in focus and intention. The Pharisees, this is their first appearance in Luke's gospel. And teachers of the law are sitting there. They're, they're sitting there. Now, normally, in, in a teaching situation with the rabbi, the rabbi sits, everyone else stands. So let's... Want to switch that? <laughs> I can sit down, you can all stand for the duration of the message. Um, He's in a house, but they're, they're sitting, so they're, kind of, they're putting themselves, they're there to evaluate, they're there to pass judgment, they're there to check, check this guy out. They're not there to learn, they're there to evaluate. And we'll see that throughout, uh, throughout this, both this passage and throughout Luke's gospel. And the other thing that's interesting, just, just kind of in a general sense, and watch for this as you read Luke, Actually, watch for it whenever you read any uh, story in the Bible. Is typically there's only two active characters in a story. If there's a third one, sometimes they're, they're, they're just there almost as a prop. And so you've got these friends, and you've got this man, and they never speak. Right? There's no, and the man said, forgive me, Jesus, for my sins. 
please heal me. No, no speech from these guys. But the Pharisees are talking, and Jesus is talking. And that's the main conversation going on. And in biblical narrative, the, the core theological truths are communicated inside the quotation marks. Uh, and in what people say and how they talk and then how they interact. So we've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and as Luke's saying, they're coming from all over to check Jesus out, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now that doesn't mean that there were times where Jesus was just like, I can't, sorry, can't do anything today. Just fresh out of power, you know. Jesus returned from the desert in the power of the Spirit and began his ministry after the baptism. But there's a setup here to contrast the Pharisees and Jesus and what Jesus' mission is all about. And so there's a tension being set up here. Luke is setting up the scene for this so that we don't just kind of get distracted by the man on the stretcher and the digging through the roof and all that other stuff. The, the conversation is important between Jesus and the Pharisees. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Very interesting phrase, power of the Lord. This phrase in Greek only occurs one other time, and it's at Exodus 12, 41. In Exodus 12, 41, the, the, the narrator is giving us a summary of the Exodus event and that the power of God accomplished the salvation of his people. And this is the only other time where the phrase... Dynamite, which is the Greek word, the dynamite of the Lord is, is mentioned. I was like, I was like, really? <laughs> like, I thought the Bible would be full of this phrase, the power of the Lord, but it only occurs twice. At least in Greek. And you have to go to the Greek of the, uh, of the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, to see this, which Luke, being a Greek speaking man and a Gentile would have much readier access rather than reading in Hebrew and that comes out a couple of times actually in this passage that these allusions to the Old Testament Luke is very well aware of the Greek Old Testament which was translated a couple hundred years before Christ the power of the Lord the exodus salvation power of God that will set his people free is at work in this scene. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news. And so this sets it up. And then we get the main, the main event. Interesting. The Pharisees are in the room. They're in the house. And Mark tells us it's in Capernaum. And we talked about this a few weeks ago where we, uh, you know, it's, it's likely that Jesus, through Mark's gospel, he's always going back to Capernaum. There's always a house in Capernaum he always goes back to. And archaeology has basically found that there is a house not too far from where the synagogue stood in Capernaum in the first century that early on became a church and it was likely Peter's house. They're often going back to that location. But they're in the house and Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees want to be right in there to the point where the crowd blocks every, every, everyone else from being able to get to Jesus. And there's a contrast, I think, between those who are coming to Jesus with their need and those who are coming to Jesus to evaluate. 
See, because this man on a bed cannot get to Jesus on his own power. These other guys could walk in and sit down. He couldn't. He was paralyzed. He could not get to Jesus alone. For him, access was difficult. They were seeking to bring him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. It's, there's so many people there. They can't get in. They go up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Now, this is where Luke is showing his Greekness too, and probably maybe unaware of building codes in, in, uh, in this part of the world at Capernaum. He's thinking more of uh, Greek uh, construction where they did kind of have tiled roofs and you could just remove a tile and maybe let somebody down. The, the, the roofs in, in Capernaum were basically you, you, adobe houses, so you've got like a mud brick wall, and then you lay logs across this way, and then you lay a bunch of sticks and stuff this way, and then about a foot to two feet of mud and dirt to waterproof the thing. So you got about two feet of material to dig through. Hardened clay. Imagine that. Just chip, 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 and being able, you know, having a skylight in the middle of your house now because these guys are desperate to get their friend to Jesus. Access is difficult. So they dig through the roof, they dig through all that stuff, they get him to Jesus, they persist, and they're creative. They make a way. And it says that when Jesus saw their faith, faith of the group, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Actually, he says your sins have been forgiven already, and they always will be. It's a perfect tense. Perfect passive. Passive is an action that somebody else does for you, not that you do. That you, so he's saying, you didn't earn this, you didn't deserve it. He didn't even ask for it, right? Oh, I have to wrap our minds around that theologically a little bit. There's no confession here. These people just get him to Jesus, get him to Jesus. And he says, your sins have been forgiven. Daryl Bach in his uh, theology of Luke and Acts says that in, in Luke's gospel, faith is always a concrete action. Faith is always a concrete action. It's not, faith is not a list of doctrines that I say yes to. Faith is actions that I take. Faith is living it out in everyday life. Faith is going, we've got to get to Jesus because only he has the power to heal and we will dig through the roof to get to him. That's faith. We'll see this throughout Luke and this is the first occurrence of the word faith in Luke's gospel. And isn't it interesting that this first action of faith is ripping a ceiling apart to get a friend to Jesus? That is act of faith. Man, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees now, now, the main focus shifts right here. Now, remember, the circumstances that, that confront the main characters are this man being let down through a hole in the roof, 
The paralytic and his friends are really secondary to the focus of the narrative. It's on the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and Jesus. The main focus here now shifts. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the irony here is they're not wrong. Right? They're not wrong. They're dead on list of scriptures that you can back that up with, right? A guy can't forgive sins. Exodus 34, 6, I am, the, I am the Lord, there is no other. I pardon, I forgive. Now Psalm 103, 3, Isaiah, multiple times. They're, they're all, all, there's verse after verse throughout the Old Testament that says, I am God, I will not share my glory with another, and it is I alone who can forgive iniquity and transgression and set people free. He's the only one. The Pharisees begin to question this because that's the truth. That's the truth. And so what is going on here? These guys are just going, what? You can't say that. Nobody can say that. And so Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, answers them. Why are you questioning in your hearts? He's dis- Even in that question, he is displaying his divine knowledge and power and authority, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Now, rabbinic argument is a discussion cycling on questions. You just ask questions back and forth. That's how rabbis teach. You just ask questions. So Jesus is like, so what's the easier thing to do here for me to say? It's easy for, for me to say, hey, you know, Luke, your sins are forgiven. Or, you know, maybe say, uh, Lindsay, your diabetes is healed. What's the easier one? Well, I can say that and there's no way to prove it. Right? Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove it. But here's a paralytic. You know, we, we looked at leprosy a few weeks ago, and with leprosy, there was a whole two chapters in the Old Testament on if the leprosy clears up, here's the process, and here's everything that you need to do. There's nothing like that for paralytic, because a paralytic doesn't just get up and walk. You don't recover from paralysis. It doesn't happen. Remember, Dr. Luke here. Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the key point. That you may know, again, perfect tense of the verb, that you may know for certain, and this is what he wants Theophilus. Luke's purpose is the knowledge that Jesus is who he said he is, and everything, Theophilus, that you've heard about Jesus is absolutely true. That you would know both the Pharisees and then Luke to his audience, that you would know that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite way to uh, talk about himself, the Son of Man, and this could have overtones from Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14, again in the, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, it says the Son of Man is one who has power on earth. You don't get that in the Hebrew, the Aramaic at that point, but... Definitely in the Septuagint, it says power. The Son of Man has authority and power on earth. 
so that you would know it. He says to the paralyzed man, he just gives him three basic instructions. Rise, pick it up, go home. And immediately, he rose, he picked up, he went home. But there's a plus. He glorifies God. This man experiences the presence of Jesus in an amazing way. And he glorifies God. When Jesus does anything in our lives, the automatic response should be worship and adoration and glorifying God. It's fulfilled. And everybody is amazed. Verse 26, there's three things that happen here. And a fourth. It's kind of a three plus one pattern. They're amazed. The Greek word is ecstasy. <laughs> They're filled with ecstasy, seized them all. Pharisees and teachers of the law included. It says all. It says they. You know, you follow the they in this, in this passage and you've got... And it comes down to this, it seized them all, and they all glorified God and were filled with awe. They glorified God, they, they gave doxology, they gave glory to God, and they were filled with awe. The word is fear, phobia. And they say, we have seen a paradox today. It's a paradox it just blows our minds that this could happen. Something amazing happens here. In the presence of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and who He is, sins are forgiven, healing is provided, expectations are exceeded, and worship is natural. You know, when the, when the friends dug through the roof to get their friend to Jesus, they were just expecting, hoping for a miracle that he would walk. You know, that's, if my kid was paralyzed, I would, that would be, you know, heal, heal, heal. I want to see him walk again. But he gets so much more. Your sins are forgiven. Stand up and walk. Now here is Jesus dealing with both the, the, the sin that would leave him forever spiritually paralyzed. And then he deals with the physical paralysis as well. And in the end, according to this chapter, we don't know how these Pharisees and teachers of the law lived from then on, but in this case, Amazement seized them, they glorified God, and they were filled with awe. And they, in this, we need to come to this too, when, when we know that God has done an amazing work in our lives, even if it's not something as radically physical as this, but just the reality that Jesus says, because I am going to the cross, your sins can be forgiven. You can be set free and made whole and saved because 
the B-L-O-O-D was shed for me. And so our heart posture toward God should be just the same every day. We should be amazed. Verse 26. Are you amazed at the grace and the mercy of God? We glorify God and are filled with awe, just saying, this is too much. It's amazing. We need to celebrate that forgiveness and the goodness of God. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of that chapter says, In all these things we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Celebrate with amazement and glorifying God and being filled with awe of the extraordinary grace that he gives us. Be amazed at the grace of God. We all need our sins forgiven. We all need to get to Jesus. But we can't get there on our own. Nobody can get there on their own. We need one another sometimes. We need friends to dig a hole through the roof and get us there. Sometimes we're, we're that paralyzed and access is difficult. But persist. Again, I think this is for, for those of you who are, you have family or friends that you've been praying for and praying for that they would come to Jesus, just keep at it. Dig through that roof. Keep digging. Because when he sees their faith, again, this is, this is a hard one we won't unpack. He says, Your sins are forgiven. There's something about the community coming around people and bringing them to Jesus that is powerful. In the presence of Jesus, we find a place where our sins are forgiven, where our healing is provided for, where our expectations are exceeded, and so we can come to him in absolute worship, in adoration, saying we have seen extraordinary things in the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are good, that your loving kindness endures forever, that you forgive sin and iniquity, that you made a way for us to be right with you through Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. And through his blood, he has torn down, destroyed the barrier between, between one another and between you, and relationships are restored, and our relationship with you is made new. And we've been reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may we just be in awe of your amazing grace. So amazing. May we resonate 
May we just think on this this week. That you called us to yourself. Nobody comes to the Father unless I first, unless he's first drawn. No one comes to Jesus unless, unless the Father draws him. No one can be alive without the Spirit's work in their hearts. And so, Lord, may we be responsive. May we come to you knowing that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and there find help and grace in our time of need. Lord, thank you so much. Fill us with wonder. Fill us with awe. Fill us with worship. Just at the reality that you forgive our sins and set us free. Help us to rise from this place. Pick up what we've been lying on and go home glorifying God. In Jesus' name, amen.